100 years ago, insulin was first injected into a dog called Marjorie, reducing her blood sugar levels. Since then, it has saved the lives of millions of people worldwide. It is a wonder drug, but one with a fatal flaw if the wrong dose is taken. I've had quite a few hypos, actually. Virginie has type 1 diabetes. I feel very dizzy. I'm shaking if it's quite significant. I feel that I need food and things like that. And actually at night, it would wake me up. Hypoglycemia, or hypo events, are when too much insulin is taken for the food a person has eaten or the energy they have used. The consequences of getting the insulin dose wrong, in this case, can be fatal. On the other hand, not taking enough insulin chronically will result in sugar levels rising into a hyperglycemic state and long-term complications. In the short term, a severe lack of insulin can lead to ketoacidosis and again, sadly, death. When Marjorie was first given insulin, diabetes was one of the major causes of mortality around the world. It still is today. This is In Conversation from Medical News Today. I'm Dr. Hilary Geit. 100 years on from its discovery, we're asking, how does injected insulin simulate the natural actions of the hormone? They replicate even better what happens physiologically, and as a result of that, they enable much more stable blood sugar levels. What can be done to support people who use insulin? It's a source of worry, not necessarily for me, but actually people around you. And diabetes is the only major non-communicable disease for which the risk of dying early is going up rather than down. How can access to insulin be improved? Globally, the most common cause of death for a child living with type 1 diabetes is actually lack of access to insulin. But first, let's go back into the history books and explore how insulin was discovered. According to some sources, diabetes as a collection of symptoms was already known in ancient Egypt over 3,500 years ago. Maria Kahoot is Medical News Today's feature editor. Although the term diabetes, which comes from the ancient Greek and means to pass through, was likely first mentioned a little bit later by a Greek physician called Aretas of Cappadocia, who lived in the second century of the Common Era. Aretas used this term because of one key symptom of diabetes. People who have diabetes need to pass a lot of urine. We now know this condition for its full name of diabetes mellitus. Mellitus comes from the Latin word that means sweet like honey, and it was added to the name of the condition by British physician Thomas Willis in 1675 in reference to the fact that the urine of people with diabetes is sweet. In fact, the way in which ancient Indians and ancient Egyptians tested for diabetes was by looking for so-called honey urine. They would determine whether ants would be attracted to a person's urine because it was sweet. And if the ants were attracted to it, the diagnosis for diabetes was positive. And if they were not, it was negative. Wow, that's really interesting. I actually have a little personal anecdote about this, um, which I think shows that this is a method that persisted well into the 20th century in some communities. 
when I was younger, my grandma, who had type 2 diabetes, used to tell me about her grandma, who also had type 2 diabetes, and how she found out about it. So my grandmother's grandmother did the same thing as the ancient Egyptians. She threw the urine from the chamber pot out in the garden to see if it would attract the ants, and it did attract the ants, and that's how she found out. Wow, that's extraordinary. That's a great story. Let's bring the story forward a bit now. How did you find out that insulin was discovered? Well, in 1889, Josef von Mering and Oskar Minkowski at the University of Strasbourg in France made a key discovery. They removed the pancreases of dogs and the animals would go on to develop diabetes and die soon afterwards. So the researchers realized that the pancreas had something to do with the cause of their condition, but they didn't yet understand the role of the crucial hormone, insulin. Over 30 years later, two other researchers, Frederick Banting and Charles Best at the University of Toronto in Canada, took out the pancreases of dogs to artificially induce diabetes, as the previous researchers had done. Toward, toward the end of July, 1921, after months of experiments, they removed an extract from the pancreatic islet cells of healthy dogs and injected it into the dog with diabetes. When we first saw the uh, dramatic lowering of the blood sugar of a dog when we gave it a, an extract from pancreas that we thought was potent. They managed to keep this dog alive for 70 days before she died of an infection, but this marked the first animal to be kept alive by this new treatment for diabetes. And we had in mind the use of insulin in patients and tried to anticipate uh, that by studying our, our dogs as carefully as we could. I think we um, showed the effect of uh, insulin on our diabetic dogs 75 times without any failures. And that's how they discovered the role of insulin, almost exactly 100 years ago now. And did those researchers, Bunting and Bess, did they go on to test this in humans? Yes, they did. Banting and Bess continued to develop a more refined and pure form of insulin, this time from the pancreases of cattle. In January 1922, with the help of some other researchers, the first injections of this insulin extract were used in humans. Now that patient got his insulin on January the 11th, 1922. Leonard Thompson, a 14-year-old boy who at the time was dying because of diabetes in a Toronto hospital, became the first person to receive an injection of insulin. Within 24 hours from that injection, Leonard's dangerously high blood glucose levels dropped to near normal levels, and the news about insulin spread around the world like wildfire. In 1922, Eli Lilly became the first company to mass-produce insulin. And in 1923, the researchers received the Nobel Prize in Medicine for this discovery. But what happened since then? The insulin of today is very different to that of 100 years ago. It is. In 1946, something called NPH insulin is shown to be successful, which decreases the burden of treatment. And it prolongs the effects of insulin, which means that people with diabetes can have fewer injections. We now call this slow-acting insulin. But unlike the insulin of today, this was still an animal-based insulin usually from cattle or from pigs. Pig insulin was generally useful because it differs from human insulin by only a single amino acid. 
were there other problems using um, animal insulin? Oh, yes, there were. Um, animal insulin was far from ideal. Aside from all of the animal rights issues that you can think about, which admittedly was on top of the agenda back then, um, pig and cattle insulin caused allergic reactions in many patients. So in 1978, the first genetically engineered synthetic quote-unquote human insulin was produced. The researchers used E. coli bacteria to produce the insulin. The other problem with insulin was injecting it via a syringe. So what was the alternative? Well, the first insulin pen was created in 1985. And these were similar to what many people use today. From the outside, they look like a pen, hence the name. But they contain a small needle and you push the top down to operate it. This innovation eliminated the need for cumbersome glass syringes. And the insulin inside the pens, did they go on to develop that further? They did. In 1996, insulin analogues, um, a range of rapid acting, long acting and pre-mixed formulations, were created to more closely mimic the body's natural pattern of releasing insulin. And patients with diabetes then started using various plans, often a daily long-acting injection and shorter-acting doses several times a day to match the patient's meal times, which allowed for better control of diabetes. Maria, thanks very much for all of that. Thank you. Insulin is a life-saving drug, but the hormone actually does more than lowering a person's blood sugar. Dr. Tom Barber is Associate Professor at the University of Warwick in the UK and an honorary consultant endocrinologist. Thanks for joining us, Tom. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. We heard from Maria there that insulin is a life-saving drug. Most people know it controls blood sugar, but it does much more, doesn't it? What does it actually do? Essentially, in very simple terms, metabolism within the body can be divided into two main groups. One is so-called anabolism and the other is catabolism. Now, anabolism is what happens when we take nutrients into our cells like sugar, fats, uh, amino acids, which are the building blocks of proteins. And this typically happens in a well-fed state. So for example, when you eat a meal, the body's metabolism goes into anabolic mode and it takes up those nutrients into the cells. And insulin is the key hormone responsible for anabolism. And think of it like having a little key inside the blood which opens up the cells and allows sugar and nutrients, amino acids and so on to enter into the cells. It's obviously far more complex than that. There's other hormones like glucagon, for example, which act in concert with insulin. But as I said, insulin is really the key anabolic hormone uh, and it typically gets released in well-fed states. So when you don't have insulin, this means that there's no keys in the blood to open up the cells. So the cells are unable to take up the sugar and the amino acids. And instead, those nutrients ultimately are excreted in the urine. And uh, that can lead to very high blood sugar levels, for example, which is the hallmark of uh, diabetes mellitus. So what you're saying is insulin, it's not just opening the cells up to sugar, but to other nutrients as well. That's right. Uh, I mean, it, it has a major effect on glucose, on sugar uptake into cells, but it's not the only nutrient it acts on. And in fact, it does also enables proteins to be made within cells. Indeed, insulin also is responsible for 
taking up fatty acids from the blood into the fat cells, the adipocytes. And so we need insulin to store the fat in our diet, any excess fats into the fat cells within our body. So it does much more than just control glucose. Fascinating. We usually associate the need for insulin injections with people with type 1 diabetes because they're not producing insulin themselves. But in type 2 diabetes, I understand they are still producing insulin, but their body's resistant to it. So where does insulin come in for them? Yes, that's right. So type 1 is an autoimmune condition where the beta cells in the pancreas are targeted by autoantibodies and there's insulin deficiency, which means that these patients need insulin injections right from the start. Whereas in type two, as you correctly state, this is very much a condition associated with what's called insulin resistance, which is, as its name suggests, resistance to the effect of insulin on the cells, that the insulin becomes less effective. And over time, this can lead to increases in blood sugar levels. And this can often be treated with lifestyle changes, weight loss, for example, improved diet, exercise, and so on. And often also with oral forms of therapy, so tablets, which can uh, help the insulin to work better. But with type 2 diabetes over time, it is a progressive condition and the beta cells gradually deteriorate over time. And eventually they reach the point where the insulin levels, even with the help of lifestyle and tablets, are too low to actually maintain good sugar levels. And that's the point where many patients with type 2 diabetes eventually require insulin therapy as well. So if in type 2 diabetes, the body's resistant to the insulin, but then you inject it, aren't they still resistant to the external insulin as well? That's absolutely correct. Clearly, if you're resistant to a particular hormone like insulin, you typically need more of that hormone for it to work well. And indeed, when you look at the Doses of insulin required for patients with type 2 diabetes, these are typically much higher than in type 1 because exactly for the point you raise that they could have resistance to the effect of insulin. Uh, insulin is one of those drugs which has two orders of magnitude in terms of its dosing. Some patients can be on two units or eight units. There's other patients who are literally on hundreds of units per day. So it's very important when we're using insulin that we dose it very carefully and importantly the patient is well aware of the effects of, of insulin on them as an individual. Just moving on to inpatients, we're looking at insulin to mimic what the body does naturally throughout a whole 24-hour period. So can you take us through the sorts of research that is going on to help us improve this? What you need to understand is that insulin is a hormone which is there all the time, okay, in normal physiology. It's always there in the background. And then when we eat a meal, there's a a large steep rise in insulin levels in the blood, which rise at the time of eating the meal and then gradually drop within the course of two or three hours following the meal, a so-called postprandial period. And it's probably not too surprising to you to learn that um, the biggest determinant of this rise in insulin is, is actually how much sugar we have in that meal, because sugar is the main nutrient which insulin acts on. Then it maintains the blood sugar levels at constant levels. If we didn't have that peak or that surge in insulin after a meal, our blood sugar levels would go way too high following a meal and that could lead to problems, okay? So normally in physiology, glucose is really well regulated through these two processes, so the background insulin and the so-called prandial rise in insulin. And that's what we're trying to replicate when we're giving insulin therapeutically. So what has been developed to help replicate those physiological processes? 
So in recent years, there's been huge developments in our ability to use insulin in diabetes. So for example, when you look at the basal insulins that we have, the, the background insulins, in the past, we used to have insulins which had a bit of a peak and they would rise a bit and that could cause low blood sugar levels, hypoglycemia, and it didn't really replicate the kind of background, very flat insulin levels that you get physiologically. And then when we had the rise of the analog insulins just over 20 years ago, we had a way of replicating that much better with a flatter profile and a longer duration. And then more recently, we have the so-called second generation basal insulins like Tujeo and Degladec, for example, which both work in, in different ways, but essentially they do a very similar thing in that they enable a much flatter profile over a longer duration. So they replicate even better what happens physiologically. And as a result of that, they enable much more stable blood sugar levels with reduced risk of having low sugars, for example, during the night. Likewise, with the bolus insulins, the insulins that we have with meals, which replicate the rise, the steep rise in insulin. And essentially what this means for patients is that their blood sugar levels are much more stable. It means that they don't have swings in glycemia much fewer very high sugar levels or fewer hypoglycemic episodes, which of course is one of the key aims of therapy with insulin. Uh, so it's a much better setup for patients. And of course, if you have better stability, that enables you to titrate the insulin much more easily and get better overall sugar control. Uh, of course, there are many other innovations as well, but I'm sure we can go into that. Tell us more about those future innovations that you mentioned. What we've been talking about just now is insulin, which is injected subcutaneously. The other main way of, of giving insulin is through a pump, which continuously supplies insulin under the skin. We use a fast-acting insulin in this pump, and the settings in the pump can be adjusted so that it can lead to a trickle of insulin going in, the so-called background, and then adjusted by the patient when they eat a meal, so it can lead to a, a bolus dose, for example. And uh, what we also have a, a huge development in recent years as well is our ability to monitor blood sugar levels through what's called continuous glucose monitoring. Continuous glucose monitoring provides a, a continuous assessment without relying on the patient to do finger pricks, even when they're asleep, for example. And it can give much, much better insights into what's happening with their glycemia and enable them to adjust their insulin accordingly. This kind of holy grail, if you like, is the artificial pancreas, the so-called closed loop system, whereby these continuous glucose monitors communicate with the insulin pump. And it's entirely automated in a way that doesn't rely on the patient. So in other words, the insulin dosage is influenced and determined by the glucose at any particular time. There is some fascinating research to suggest that that can be done. It's been shown that that can actually reduce hypoglycemic rates by having that kind of technology in place. But we're, we're some way away from actually being able to have an artificial pancreas, which doesn't rely on the patient at all. I think for the future, I think it will come, but we're not quite there yet. Taking insulin several times a day is a challenge. But it is the reality for people with type 1 diabetes. Virginie was diagnosed with the condition as an adult. Maria Kohut, who we heard from earlier, spoke to Virginie about her newfound relationship with insulin. My name is Virginie. I'm 35 years old and I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes two years ago. I've had to adjust to insulin treatment straight away. I take insulin every day, four times a day minimum. In the morning, I take one long-acting insulin. And then before each meal, I take a fast-acting insulin. So what's the difference between long-acting and fast-acting? 
The long-acting insulin, like the name suggests, would act throughout the day and the night. So that means that it also regulates while I'm asleep, so that my uh, blood glucose is kept under control. Whereas the fast-acting one is when I'm going to have more sugar put in my body imminently. So I need to prevent any spike to avoid any hyperglycemia. That means raised blood sugar. That's why it's also linked to what I'm going to eat. So we can count carbs, for instance. If I eat more, uh, I would need more insulin than if I eat less carbs and things like that. So it can be difficult to get the dose of insulin right. And if you take too much insulin, that can make your blood sugar go too low, which gives you hypoglycemia, also known as hypo. Have you had a hypo and what happened? Yes, so I've had quite a few hypos, actually, but thankfully they've never been severe. In my case, apart from a a few exceptions, I do have symptoms, I do have signs, if you like, that I can feel I'm going to have a hypo. I'm saying this because I know it's not everyone, but for me, certainly, I feel very dizzy. I'm shaking if it's quite significant. I feel that I need food. I actually want food and things like that. And actually at night, it would wake me up. So there have been a a few exceptions and that's why it helps to have, for instance, my phone tracking everything at night and so on. But usually I would feel it, but definitely I would need to, okay, sit down, have a a bit of a drink with sugar in it, so orange juice, and then a piece of toast or something like that. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about how your understanding of insulin has changed through time. And also emotionally, how does using insulin impact you? I would say the first thing is that it's quite incredible to think that I can manage my glucose levels by getting injections that I can actually perform myself. And so obviously I I know what a significant advance it was. I remember getting the diagnosis and obviously knowing that my blood sugar levels were all over the place and to know that actually you can keep them under control. I think it's quite powerful. At the same time, because it's that powerful, it can make me a bit anxious. And obviously, like probably many people who are insulinodependent, I've sometimes um, misinterpreted how much or how little insulin I needed and to see that Obviously, I've created a drop, for instance, or that I didn't prevent a spike. That's really quite a huge responsibility. It's also a source of worry, not necessarily for me, but actually people around you. Because understandably, they're going to ask, are you sure, you know, you, you've got your things, you know, we can go now. Because if you're not going to be near a hospital or near, not even mentioning a hospital, but you're going to be far from home and things like that, what do you do? Sometimes you get used to it. So there has been a, a few times where, yes, I forgot. For instance, it was the end of my insulin pen and I didn't check properly. And if you if you say that, people obviously get uh, rightfully quite worried. Oh, no, no, we need to get you home. We need to get you home. Even though, of course, uh, I know that in that case, it's never a huge spike or a huge drop because I would be much more, <laughs> much more worried myself. Thank you so much for so generously sharing your story with us and with our listeners. Thank you very much, Maria. It was a... It was an honor being here and thank you for what you're doing and raising awareness about this. 
Tom, I was struck by how Visioni described how anxious her friends and family can get. Is that something you see often in your patients? Yes, absolutely. I think this is a really, really important point which Virginie has raised. And I think we shouldn't underestimate the impact of a diagnosis of diabetes and its therapy with insulin on the patient and the patient's social group and indeed on wider society. Uh, Being diagnosed with diabetes can often associate with mental distress. Being on insulin therapy also can often associate with stress in patients and anxieties. For example, one of the key anxieties is the fear of hypoglycemia or low blood sugar levels, which is, of course, is entirely understandable. Uh, The fear of having to inject as well, and many patients don't like that idea. And also another side effect of insulin is actually weight gain as well, which can be particularly relevant often, for example, in patients with type 2 diabetes in whom obesity and overweight can often associate, understandably, because of all of these factors, there's often quite a lot of resistance to the idea of going on to insulin therapy. And this needs to be addressed sensitively and and with compassion. This is really, really important. There is a relative lack of proper psychology and talking-based therapies for our patients with diabetes. And one almost feels as if there's a need for that, for these patients, not just to have the standard education on diabetes, but to have the focused psychological support, which is really a separate thing from education. I think they should have obviously the two together, but the psychological support is often lacking. And I think that really is an unmet need. And I think it's something we could certainly do a lot more on in the future. Thank you. Virginie had a number of questions she wanted to ask you, Tom. Firstly, she picks up on the part of a physical illness that can be too easily overlooked, both in the clinic and in research. Is there any research being done at the moment or that has been done recently about the interrelationship between anxiety and insulinodependent treatments so that we know how one affects the other? So that's a really good point. And I think it's really important for your listeners to be aware that glucose control is far more complex than simply what levels of insulin are and indeed how much insulin you inject. There's actually 101 things which can influence blood sugar levels. And in fact, one of those is mental and emotional status at the time. And if you're worried or stressed or anxious, that in itself can actually push your blood sugar levels up because it's associated with the release of the stress hormone cortisol, and also the sympathetic response as well, which is the fight or flight adrenaline release, both of which act to raise your blood sugar levels. And when you think of it uh, from an evolutionary perspective, it's not surprising, is it, that if you're kind of running from a, a danger or you're engaging in a fight, so the fight or flight, that your sugar levels need to go up to enable you to have that kind of sudden burst of energy. So you can think of it in those terms and really the kind of stress response and the anxiety that many of us have in our modern day world, the response is actually exactly the same as fight or flight. So the cortisol levels go up, the adrenaline levels go up, and this pushes sugar levels up. And so often your patients, if they're stressed, they often do require higher levels of insulin. Also, if you've got an infection, for example, that can push your blood sugar levels up. Of course, exercise, uh, diet, and so on. Even the time of day, can affect your blood sugar levels. There's something called the dawn phenomenon, which is where the sugar levels can rise early in the morning. And that's due to changes, so-called diurnal rhythms or changes during the day of the levels of the stress hormone cortisol, which rise and peak just before you wake up and then gradually drop towards the end of the day. And that's really why patients often require higher doses of insulin 
with their breakfast than they do, for example, later on in the day. So there's lots and lots of different factors that need to be taken into account when dosing insulin. And really, when I'm seeing patients in clinic, I'm acutely aware of the fact that they have far more insight into their own diabetes than I do. They've been living with this day after day, hour after hour, week, months, years, sometimes even decades. And I think it's really important that as healthcare professionals, we're aware of this and we respect that. And I thank Virginie for raising that because I think it's a really, really important point. The next question that Virginie had is about a sensor. When she scans her phone against the sensor, it gives a blood sugar level reading and if used properly, a continuous history of readings throughout the day. I would like to ask, is there any research done at the moment about how to increase access to sensors and insulin pumps? So that, that's, again, a really good point. And what Virginie is referring to is something called the Freestyle Libre, which is a so-called flash monitor. And it works in very similar way to the continuous glucose monitor. The patient wears a patch on their upper arm and they can swipe over the phone and it can download the data directly onto the phone. And this has been, I would say, almost revolutionary in the sense that the insights that patients can gain from these devices is absolutely immense. You know, it gives you full insight to what's happened the whole 24-hour period. And often patients actually get insights into their sugars, which they weren't aware. For example, their sugars might be doing something during the night, which they were never aware of. Maybe it's going too low, for example. And this can be incredibly helpful. And I feel quite strongly, actually, that, you know, any patient on insulin should be provided with this Freestyle Libre device. Unfortunately, at the moment, in the NHS at least, we can't use this in patients with type 2 diabetes on insulin. But I know myself and I know many of my colleagues as well feel that it really ought to be available for patients on insulin generally. After their discussion earlier in the podcast, my colleague Maria asked Virginie about her hopes for the future. My hopes are certainly that we keep fighting for better and more accessible healthcare for everyone. Because obviously having something like diabetes and uh, you read about it, you know, if people have it and don't have access to insulin, for instance, obviously it is a life-threatening condition. And I think it's very important that obviously we make sure we provide access for all. And that access is not just to have access to insulin, but access to the diagnosis and to actually think about our own assumptions. Certainly, I didn't know that a thrush could be a symptom of diabetes. I also had a food drop, which I didn't know could be a symptom. I was thirsty all the time. I was drinking more than six liters per day and only stopping because I knew, ooh, six liters, that's a lot. I should probably stop. Anyway, when I say that now, everyone is saying, oh, yeah, yeah, that's textbook, you know, the symptoms for diabetes. Well, clearly, I didn't know. And even people around me didn't know because they could see something was wrong, but we didn't know. So my hope is that obviously uh, any sort of worry and concern is taken seriously. It's been, well, it has taken a while for me to get the diagnosis and we're only talking month. So I'm thinking about people who have to wait for years for diagnosis. And I think it's really important that uh, consider that as well. Tom, what needs to be done to improve global access to insulin? I think this is one of the key issues really of our age. Even I wasn't aware of some of the reality of the inequalities of insulin around the world. Did you know that globally the most common cause of death for a child living with type 1 diabetes is actually lack of access to insulin? That's an incredible fact it's a tragic fact, and it's, it's actually quite shameful that after 100 years of having insulin, 
WHO classing this as an essential medication, that children around the world with type 1 diabetes are dying because they don't have access to this therapy. Something needs to be done. Of course, it's a hugely complex issue. It's not just a case of providing insulin. Of course, there's huge complexities of this, the infrastructure, data collection, and so on, cultural differences and so on. There is a, a campaign called the 100 Campaign, which is aiming to improve the situation for patients around the world to have access to, to insulin. I know from visiting places like Ethiopia and, and Kenya that the Bill Gates Philanthropic Fund, for example, provides therapies for HIV, AIDS and TB across sub-Saharan Africa. Isn't that a fantastic fantastic innovation. But I think, wouldn't it be fantastic if the Bill Gates Fund could extend that to insulin-based therapies, you know, for patients who who really need this in type 1 diabetes? I think this is a really important point. And, you know, the monitoring devices, again, it would be fantastic to make them more available. We shouldn't, of course, also assume that this is a problem which is confined to lower and middle income countries. In fact, there was a study from a part of the US which looked at patients with DK or diabetic ketoacidosis, which is what happens when you don't have insulin. And this can be a fatal condition. And they looked at this and they found that around two thirds of the cases in this particular study were due to the fact that they weren't taking insulin. And of those, around a quarter was because they couldn't afford their insulin. And this is in the richest nation on earth. Uh, so we shouldn't assume that the lack of insulin is confined to low-income countries. It's not. It's actually an endemic problem globally. And I think, you know, as the global community, we should really try and address that. Dr Tom Barber, thank you very much. OK, thank you very much. Thank you also to Virginie for sharing her story with us and to Maria Kohut, feature editor at Medical News Today. And of course, thank you for listening. You can read more about insulin, its discovery and progress on our website, all in Maria's special feature at medicalnewstoday.com. We'll be in conversation again next month. I'm Dr Hilary Geit, and this is a Hivis Radio production for Medical News Today. Medical News Today.